0: An, an elegant weapon, but a more civilized age.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to an Elegant Weapon episode 384. My name is Jay, J.M. Clark, Jay the Jedi Ross, Ross Jedi Jay. And as always, it is so wonderful to have all you beautiful babies back here with me in the as yet unnamed brand new podcast studio here in beautiful Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. It's good to see you all again. Uh, Very excited this week, Uh, we've got a very interesting new guest who's got a few things to discuss uh, that are right up my alley, so uh, that's what we're going to get into here, kids, but before we do, we're going to do the inevitable Zoom problem. We're going to click to expand, we're going to hear our own voices, and then we're going to hit mute, because for some reason, can't get around that on Zoom. So uh, here we are, kids, yet again, beautiful Sunday afternoon. Um, I know this is a little bit different as far as our usual scheduled programming, but uh, due to today's guest's uh, location, we had to go a little earlier on a Sunday, which is very cool. He is the author of How to Think Like an o- a Roman Emperor, and he, of uh, you're also writing the upcoming graphic novel Verissimus. Um mm-hmm. Uh, what is it called again? Sorry, I got to stick it in my head. It's uh, Verissimus the, the Stoic, Stoic philosophy, philosophy of Marcus Aurelius. Very, very so, cool. So, um, Donald, it's very awesome to meet you. We were introduced by uh, our mutual friend, Miss Casey Pierce. Uh, when Casey Pierce comes, calling. I answer. Um, Normally, I'll vet individuals and see if, you know, I'm kind of interested in talking to them on the show or if it'll be a cool podcast. But when Casey calls, uh, I don't question. I just book that guest and then we have a conversation. Uh, But the coolest thing about uh, you this week is really a lot of this is quite up my alley. Um, So I'm very interested to to hear a lot of things. Why don't we start at the beginning and talk a little bit about you? Because obviously, when people hear you speak, they'll realize you are originally not from Athens, Greece. Uh, but you are in fact originally from Scotland, yes, mm-hmm.
0: I like to tell people that I'm Canadian though, because that confuses them. like I got my citizenship about oh, like three or four years ago, or something like that so technically i'm I'm British and Canadian, now I have dual citizenship but right you did
1: live here for a few
0: years so mm-hmm. so what's, you what's your time okay, what's your timeline then? um like at the moment, the plan is like to kind of split my time between Athens and Toronto. But mainly in Athens at the moment because we're in a pretty full-on lockdown for quite a while. Um, But eventually, uh, maybe in the summer, like pandemic permitting, I'll be I'll be back in Toronto. Okay. Uh, I that's... moved to Canada about seven years ago or something like that. I think. Okay, so what brought you here? To Canada, just family stuff, you know. And I wanted to change a scene. Like I worked for a long time as a therapist, and I wanted to can I get more into writing and stuff like that? So, like, I wanted to make a bit of a fresh start. I sat down one day, I'll tell you what what I did, actually. There were a number of reasons we moved to Canada, but one of them was I was doing quite well in my career as a psychotherapist, and I sat down and I asked myself, do I want to be sitting on my deathbed, looking back at my life, and think that I've just done one thing, even if I've done that one thing really well? And I thought, nah, like, I'd rather look back and think I've done a bunch of things. So I decided to kind of make a fresh start and get more into writing books and stuff like that. Okay, so so you're growing up in Scotland, and uh, you get into
1: psychotherapy and stuff. So just growing up and education-wise, was that your just main focus all the way through until you started doing that and then started thinking about other stuff?
0: Well, I started off doing philosophy. Okay. Um, it's kind of weird, like it is, there's a little bit in how to think like a Roman emperor, about it's only because my publisher, my editor insisted that I put in a, a little intro where I explain how I got into this stuff. Yeah. My father passed away when I was about 13 years old and oh. he was a, a Freemason. Um, so that's very common in the part of Scotland that I come from. I think actually virtually all of my friends' fathers were Freemasons. Robert Burns, our national bard, like was a, a master mason. And uh, he didn't leave very much stuff behind except a bunch of books on Freemasonry. So I had a look at them and I couldn't make head nor tail of them. But there was a lot of references to Plato and Pythagoras and the Cardinal Virtues and the influence of Hellenistic philosophy and uh, the symbolism of Freemasonry. And so that kind of got me reading um, a lot of religious texts and then reading Plato and reading about philosophy. And I guess I was looking for a kind of father figure substitute and I found it in philosophy and Freemasonry I think for my father had given him a philosophy of life which was kind of had this Hellenistic Greek philosophical influence in it and so I was looking for something a bit like that and uh, I, I don't think I realized that consciously at the time but I think that's kind of what was going on so I wound up going to Aberdeen to study philosophy and then I thought how am I going to get a job at the end of this and uh one day a guy turned up to speak to the students and he was a psychotherapist. And he said, you know, being a psychotherapist isn't a bad gig if you've got a degree in philosophy. You know, they're kind of complementary things. I thought maybe I'll train as a counsellor and therapist. And that's what I did. So I got into studying a bunch of different types of psychotherapy and I ended up, you know, my career became this kind of weird interdisciplinary hybrid of classical philosophy and modern evidence-based psychotherapy. It's an interesting
1: mix to me with philosophy being kind of uh, like thought and ideas and, you know, and, and using that with the psychotherapy, with the mind, the mind is such a, a complex thing yet. I know that there are basics to way to the ways that, you know, the human mind does have certain basic ways, but with psychotherapy, you're trying to figure out why this individual mind is thinking the way it is. Right. Yet mm-hmm. philosophy is more of a free thought idea system am I making sense there how do you yeah. how do you join the two how do you take just thoughts and ideas yet you know coincide them with actual you know this is happening yeah. because of the way the brain works in this way does that What's make sense? the connection
0: between these two things basically like, yeah like I started off trying to connect them in a way that, that didn't work out for me actually I was very interested in a university I mainly studied Wittgenstein and Heidegger and so I thought existential psychology, existential philosophy, some people had already tried to combine the psychoanalytic psychotherapy. So I was reading Jean-Paul Sartre and Freud and Jung and all that stuff and trying to combine it. And it, it seemed incredibly complicated and not all that practical. And then I kind of discovered the Stoics and I realized that Stoic philosophy is the philosophical inspiration already for cognitive behavioral therapy. And actually, when we first started you know, modern stoicism kind of began to take off and stuff, some of the classicists and philosophers, they were a bit sniffy about it and said, you psychotherapists are kind of like uh, taking classical philosophy and kind of remoulding it, you know, in, a, in your own image, as it were, right, making it seem like a psychotherapy. And uh, they thought, you know, this isn't really in it originally, and they were wrong about that because this medical metaphor, this metaphor that uh, philosophy is a therapy is there in Socrates, It's there in the Stoics, it goes all the way back to the pre-Socratic philosophers very explicitly. In fact, the ancient Greek philosophers wrote books on psychotherapy, right? most of which are lost today, but they literally thought of philosophy as a psychotherapy 2000, 2,300, 2,400 years ago. So a lot of people really just don't realise that. They think psychotherapy kind of originated with Freud, but they're wrong about that. It was actually around very explicitly. They call it the th- uh, Therapia. My therapy of the psyche—they don't have the word psychotherapy, but they're like a hair's breadth away from calling it that—and the the key idea that they had was that our emotions are shaped by our underlying beliefs, Um, and that's summed up in a very famous, probably the most famous quote from the Stoics, from Epictetus. It says it's not things that upset us, but rather our opinions about them. So as philosophers, are very interested in exploring our opinions. And then they realized, well, when we change our opinions, we that changes our emotions as well often. And they thought, well, maybe philosophy itself has this kind of therapeutic value for, for changing and improving our emotions. And then it just so happened that in the 1950s, when people were getting disillusioned with Freud and Jung and all that kind of stuff, uh, researchers in psychology were looking at something called the cognitive appraisal theory of emotion. Or you could just say the cognitive theory of emotion. And so a bunch of research indicated that people's beliefs did indeed shape their emotions. And so the psychotherapists started saying, well, rather than asking people um, about their early childhood experiences and getting them to sit on a couch and free associate like Freud did, maybe we should just be trying to figure out what the beliefs are that they currently hold and the patterns of thinking are that they have right now that might be causing them to feel anxious, causing them to feel depressed, and then getting them to evaluate whether those beliefs are actually true or false. So the, the pioneer of cognitive therapy was a guy called Albert Ellis in New York in the 1950s. He'd read The Stoics. He was a psychoanalytic therapist and then quit it because he got fed up with it. He thought it, was, it didn't really make sense. He thought it was pseudo scientific, And he thought, I'm going to start again from scratch. But he'd read the Stoics and he knew about this research in modern psychology. And so he put together a therapy called Rational Emotive Behavior Therapy. And he used to teach that quote from Epictetus, Epictetus to all of his students and all of his clients. So when a client comes into therapy, they'll usually start off by talking about how they're angry, um, anxious, or depressed. And then they'll usually talk about how that's damaging their life. So it's causing them misery. It's been going on for a long time. It's damaging their relationships. It's maybe affecting their performance at work. It's affecting their social life, you know, and all the dreadful consequences that their emotional problems have. And then they'll kind of paint themselves into a corner where it's obvious that they need to do something about that. And then they'll express their stuckness. And they'll do that by saying, typically... I know I'm anxious, I know I'm depressed, I know it's causing me all these problems, but I can't help it. It's just the way I feel. And Ellis used to lean forward and go, but it's not just the way that you feel. It's also the way that you think. And that's the cognitive model of emotion. And as soon as you recognize that thoughts are underlying feelings, it opens a whole toolbox, the whole toolbox of cognitive therapy. Because now you can go, well, maybe we can set about trying to identify what the thoughts are that make you anxious or depressed? Maybe we can look at whether there might be alternative beliefs or perspectives that might be healthier and more realistic. Maybe we could weigh up the evidence for and against your beliefs. Maybe we can uh, look at the consequences of holding certain beliefs. Now we've got all these tools that emerge, cognitive therapy tools, but the Stoics knew a lot of that two thousand three hundred years ago. Really, which seems really weird now. It's like um, we had a, a dark age of psychotherapy that lasted uh, about 2,000 years, and then it all came back into the light again. See, stoicism, it it, it fascinates
1: me on on many levels. And in a way, I've kind of viewed it in the past as kind of originally how humans had to be, because there was a time there was a time when we were, you know, still developing and evolving when you had no choice. It's just how cruel the world was. You got eaten by something. That's the way it was. You didn't get to spend two weeks crying and mourning and funeraling and, you know, processing your thought process. You had to keep worrying about not getting eaten and eat yourself. So there was a certain balance in our emotions and in our actions and our thought process probably back then that as we have become a more, you know, comforted species, convenience, yeah. and all of that kind of stuff, we just seem to further get away further and further from that. But it it I see it as remaining as such a part of our core and something we kind of want to strive to get to, at least a part of it, because mm-hmm. of how much of we see it in our pop culture, like Klingons, Vulcans. Uh, the jedi you know you can pick a lot of these where they've got these uh, absolutely stoic philosophies behind you know these certain races and species that we identify with and that's why we like a certain show it's like say we watch a star trek episode about whatever and we see that alien species and we identify we want to strive for those beliefs because to us they seem more evolved than Mm -hmm. we are at you know what i mean
0: well you're suggesting i think you're implying it's what um We some philosophers used to call a perennial philosophy, which is this idea that certain philosophies are kind of almost archetypal. Like there, you know, there's so many, there's maybe like a a selection box of half a dozen basic generic philosophies of life. Like there's only so many different perspectives that people typically will have on, on what the goal of life is. Is it all about enjoying pleasure? Is it about attaining wisdom? You know, there's different typical conceptions. And they're always floating around in the culture and in different uh, countries, different parts of the world, like uh, discover them in their own way. And maybe you're right that we are quite alienated from this kind of archetypal, perennial, stoic philosophy now, but we have a craving for it. We kind of miss it. And it comes back to us in fiction in the arts. Absolutely. And I feel like... um
1: we've just kind of forgotten how to connect in a certain way. Like as a layman, the way the past few years, I'll give you a little example um, without, you know, diving too deep into it. Uh, Three years ago, my kid's mom and I, we separated. And uh, we were together for nine years. We separated, continued to live together for the next three years in order to co-parent our child. Now, obviously, that kind of situation is going to lead to a roller coaster of emotional ups and downs. And you have to really, to make something like that work and to make something like that succeed, you have to question yourself and you have to say, okay, why am I jealous? Why am I selfish? It's because of my thought process. It's because of my certain point of view that I feel this way. And that became very evident to me. That the only reason mm-hmm. I was going through a lot of the dark times that I was was because of my outlook on those times and ignoring all the other wonderful things I could be focusing on in a way to the side so i I have been on a bit of a stoic uh you know journey for the past mm-hmm. couple of years now, trying to consciously look inside myself the way I'm looking at things in order to improve my emotional state, so mm-hmm. you know that's that's been something I've been kind of going through, and it's helped you know so I guess that's where it becomes like a uh, self-medicating psychotherapy. I mean, is that possible?
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think people often discover these philosophies for themselves. You know, either you do or you don't. And, you know, if you don't, you suffer very badly. Or if you you do, you figure out a way of coping with a situation. And uh, the Stoics actually recognized that. They said, you know, these ideas that we have, we formulated it into a philosophy, But, you know, we can see that in uh, the Greek tragedies and uh, in other cultures, people have arrived at similar ideas because they're kind of it's natural that people would come up with these coping strategies in order to deal with a stressful situation. When you're faced with a crisis or a very challenging emotional situation, you know, either you crumble or you dig deep inside yourself and figure out a realistic way of coping with it. And if you do that, you're probably going to come up with some of the same strategies that the Stoics did.
1: And it really is uh, an, an internal thought process, you know, and I, I reading a few of uh, things that you had sent me there and I kept seeing certain words like, you know, the the getting rid of vanity and all that kind of stuff. And humility is, is really what it came down to finding a balance, which are a lot of what these cultures about. It's a balance. But, you know, at the same time because you want to be emotional you want to feel love and joy and it's okay to be angry and selfish once in a while but as we're saying it is that thought process right so i guess marcus aurelius for you was a real cornerstone in this entire kind of now he didn't really come up with it what was it that marcus aurelius did did he just really cement it home as how you know as an important thing for
0: the romans to kind of be able to do or follow he's what what i like to describe as having been a big deal back in the day like, so he's important because he was a Roman emperor. And he's actually pretty much the last famous Stoic of antiquity. So one of the weird things about Stoicism is, for instance, psychoanalysis. Its heyday was maybe even less than 100 years. Marxism's heyday, about 100 years or so. Um, Stoicism flourished for about five centuries so it was a big deal in Greece and then in Rome for 500 years. Marcus is right at the end of that. So his significance is that he's kind of riding the crest of this wave that lasts five centuries. And in a sense, maybe he's the, he's peak stoicism, but he's also the most powerful man in the world. So he's also the stoic that we know most about. He's the one that's easiest to, to write about. In terms of his life and biography because we have three major surviving Roman histories of his reign and bits of archaeological evidence. We don't have anywhere near as much information about the lives of most other philosophers. So Stoicism was founded in 301 BC by a Phoenician merchant who arrived in Athens and then it kind of evolves over the centuries. And now
1: when Marcus you say Aurelius. founded Mm-hmm. Is that that individual sitting down and just kind of writing out the basic ideas of a philosophy and naming it? Or yeah. does that come from his experience of older cultures and societies yeah. that he's experienced who were kind of of stoic nature before that?
0: Well, it's two things. Like, I mean, there's probably a bunch of different influences, but the two main ones are he, he was a wealthy dye merchant and his ship sank and he lost all of his diet. So he's sort of, pff, it's gone for good. It just dissolves in the water. And so he's like an immigrant in Athens. He had to live like a beggar, as Zeno you know his name was. And so the first thing is this experience of extreme loss and hardship, right? So he must have thought, how, how do I deal with this? Zeno said, he made, he made a joke about it, and he said, my, the most profitable voyage that I've ever made was the one uh, where I lost my entire fortune because the consequence of it was that I learned... Inner wealth. Like uh, I learned, uh, I learned philosophy. I went to uh, achieve this kind of enlightenment as a result of losing all of my property. Um, so there's that. He was thrown into this extreme situation where he had to cope. But he also studied philosophy at Athens. So he'd studied in many, several different major schools of philosophy before he then, for about ten or twenty years, and then he sat down and what he did was he thought. There are good bits and bad bits in all these different schools of philosophy, and he decided he was going to combine elements of them and come up with a new school of philosophy. So he Bruce Lee it basically. <laughs> yeah, he, he did a Bruce Lee. It's kind of eclectic to begin with. He thought, like, none of these is perfect. We need a kind of, uh, we need something in the middle. So, for instance, um, in ancient Athens, loosely speaking, people thought of philosophy. Um, as a way of life is being represented by two complete opposite characters. so one is Plato, who was very scholarly and academic as we say today. his school was ca- called the academy and then the other one is everyone 's favorite Diogenes the cynic who walked around naked and uh, was like lived like a beggar wasn 't interested in logic wasn't interested in metaphysics like uh, he just thought philosophy was almost like being an Indian yogi it was about spiritual oh no we've frozen
1: let's hope that donald comes back could be the internet stretching all the way to athens greece
0: if we study these things too much hey you're back I lost oh, there you there we a are sec. all right i lost you for a minute there <laughs> i don't know if the audience could still hear me while i was kind of prattling away there but like i
1: It says here that uh, we're still live, but I
0: can't tell. Meeting is now streaming live on Facebook.
1: Sorry, kids, if you are hearing this. Um, Sorry, we're having trouble with playing this video. We'll see if it comes back. But I know I'm still recording on uh, my computer either way. So as to not mess too much with the uh, audio version. I'm sorry, but I missed the last minute or two of what you were saying. <laughs> That's okay. I can recap. Oh, that wait. Oh, no. They heard. They're good. They yeah. see what you're saying that they heard. So, well, let's just continue on and, yeah. uh, you know,
0: see if this pops back. I'll recap very briefly. Like, so, there's Diogenes the Cynic, There's Plato, like, who founded the Academy. Plato was very scholarly. You had to study mathematics, like uh, geometry. he was very bookish like Diogenes was the opposite, he went around like a beggar, like a Hindu holy man or something, sort of strengthening your character. And Zeno studied in both these schools of philosophy, and I think he came up with a hybrid approach, where he said studying logic and metaphysics and stuff like that can be useful in moderation, insofar as it contributes to actually improving your life, improving your character. But if you do it too much, then you'll just end up holed up in an ivory tower and kind of disappear up your own backside, he thought the, oh, like the academics were going too far in that direction. Okay. Diogenes had gone too far in the opposite direction of being a, a, a kind of a cynic smallsy about uh, bookish learning and logic and stuff like that. So Plato used to say that Diogenes was like Socrates gone mad. And uh, Diogenes went round to Plato's house once and rubbed his dirty feet on Plato's nice Persian carpet. He said, thus. He said, thus I trample on Plato's vanity. So they were kind of these two competing characters that couldn't stand each other. And stoicism is kind of somewhere in the middle.
1: I think maybe that's why I identify with it to a certain extent, because life, about for me, about the past few years has been all about balance. You know, that's what everybody's Mm. always looking for, is to find this balance in life. And it's just as a society, I think the thing I've seen the most is how off that balanced connection to everything is nature ourselves like i you know not not to be too pessimistic especially in this you know pandemic time when things are grim but have we come to a place where we can no longer even philosophize ourselves into a different way can you know like it's it's real hard for the general public to even have the time or capacity to think about these things a lot of people just are thinking about you know not missing whatever tv programs on that night right so do you think it's possible for society to shift back to a way where these things are as important as they once were
0: Yeah, because they're going to, like, I mean, stoicism is huge now. Like, uh, when I started writing about stoicism, it was this really nerdy, obscure subject. My friends told me, why are you even studying stoicism? Nobody's interested in it. And then, like, 20 years go by, and now suddenly, you know, stoicism is a thing. There are loads of books coming out about it. Um, Celebrities are kind of getting into it, you know, every year when we run our conferences and Things, they get bigger and bigger. Stoicism has definitely emerged. It's kind of hit a nerve, particularly with certain groups of people. Actually, Toronto, we know from our demographic data, is one of the cities in the world where there's the most interest in Stoicism. And ironically, in Athens, where I'm at the moment, there's very little interest in Stoicism. So when you say
1: interest in stoicism, is this just an educational interest? Is this a, you know, like, how does this relate to, say, a professional field or because you People have to find something?
0: OK, a solution to the problems that they're facing. There are different sort of subgroups of people that get into Stoicism. We noticed that early on. There's a lot of people in the military that are interested in Stoicism. There's a lot of sports coaches that get into Stoicism. But there's also this demographic that tends to get labelled as millennials that work in the tech industry that are into Stoicism, like Silicon Valley types, like the the media like to say they're into Stoicism. There's something about that. I think it's that people are bombarded with information through the news media and social media that's designed to freak them out in order to get their attention so we're constantly being played like puppets by either by the news media being alarmist trying to provoke fear or anger so that we pay more attention to them um, or to social media, like people trying to get as many likes as they can, like by saying contrarian or sensationalist things and stuff like that. And I think people increasingly, you know, are reacting against that and thinking this isn't really what life is meant to be about. It feels like mm-hmm. we're kind of being played by by society, and there has to be some kind of solutions. That like people are on edge, and they have an increasing sense of really alarming things that they don't have much direct control over going on around them. And so they're looking for a way of coping with that by developing a philosophical attitude towards all of the evil, like chaos, anger like, that they see going on in the world, and also a, a sense that they have very limited control over it themselves. And I think they turn to stoicism as a way of being able to endure like, the, the, like, the, the age of the internet, basically.
1: Absolutely. I think it's the perfect thing for it. And because like, I also wanted to touch on its relation that I was reading about uh, to Buddhism in a certain way, you know, that Mm -hmm. it's, uh, you know, the same idea of of letting go and letting go of your vanity and yourself and all that yet stoicism has a bit more, as far as I, I can read again, this is a layman speaking, but what I think I like about stoicism is there's a little more action involved uh, it's a little mm-hmm. less passive than the Buddhist idea, because when I was younger and I read a lot and studied a lot about Buddhism and it really attracted me, the one thing I couldn't get over was the lack of action as much as, mm-hmm. um, cause to me, like just standing still is not a certain solution. And, you know, I, I, even saw that there was a few stoic ideas about not getting too involved, but for me, I think, uh, part of the reason of existence for us as 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 humans is to do something right not 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 to sit under a bodhi tree and find enlightenment Mm -hmm. for 100 years that's great and all it's awesome that that was accomplished but in my mind i'm like okay that was a lot of time wasted to get to somewhere that you know you maybe could have ended up in the afterlife i don't know
0: well, Marcus Aurelius actually says something that speaks directly to that, which is pretty cool. And it's like a lot of the stoic sayings, it's very simple and very direct. So he says that the the goal of life, the meaning of life, in his view, must lie in actions rather than feelings. So he has this kind of debate with himself. Is for example the goal of life all about experiencing pleasure, or is it about experiencing right. peace of mind? And he says that's a completely wrong headed way of looking at it. It's more yes. about what you do rather than what right. you feeling because like, that's what you get a sense like, when looking back on your life of, of value from. It's not about what you felt, it's what about you actually it's what you actually did with your life. So Stoicism, I'll cut right to the chase. Actually, the, the heart of Stoicism are a number of kind of paradoxes, but one of them is that the Stoics basically want to have a philosophy of life where you can be committed to determined, disciplined, and courageous action in the service of wisdom and justice while at the same time managing to kind of square the circle of not freaking out if things don't turn out according to plan. So they want a philosophy that allows them to somehow maintain equanimity, to be emotionally accepting while nevertheless being committed to determined action. And that's why it's the the perfect philosophy for a Roman emperor and a, 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 like a military commander Mm -hmm. uh, like Marcus Aurelius, because if anything, he was a workaholic, um, you know, and he was involved in a protracted series of, of wars. So he was a very busy man. Um, he didn't just sit around at Rome doing nothing. And uh, he used stoicism as a way of coping with the the challenges of that, basically, so he could keep himself sane right. or having to, to deal with one crisis after another.
1: As you say that, that is literally kind of my philosophy as to how I went about during this pandemic, because... What I have seen and what I have witnessed since the beginning of this whole thing is that a lot of people, as you said earlier, you go one way or the other, and you find a way to deal with this or you don't. And it's amazing to me uh, to see how clearly and evidently a lot of people are not in a state mentally or physically to be able to handle even this kind of situation. And for me, I have this certain connection. I'm a tree climber. I'm an arborist by profession. So, you know, I spend my days in nature, I climb trees every day, I have a certain connection to my physical being, and the outside world that has balanced my love of social media and pop culture. So I do my life is, is got this great, you know, thing going on. But you know, I know that's not the common average situation for most people. So to see people crumble in the way that they have under the weight of um I don't even know of just nothingness that they have mm-hmm. become consumed with social media to the point where they are so emotional about this electrical box in front of them that it blows my mind. Right. And meanwhile, mm-hmm. sometimes you probably wouldn't get so mad if you just went for a walk. So, you know, because mm-hmm. what I did is when I, when I couldn't go anywhere and comic cons went away, cause that, well, that was a big part of my life is I started walking the earth. I started hiking Mm -hmm. a lot, and I spent a lot of the time outdoors, a lot of time in the woods just to keep clear and to breathe and not lose it because there's so much anger now that is just unwarranted in people because they're in such a tight situation that they don't know how to handle, right? So that's what this whole pandemic has shown to me very clearly, that there's a very large
0: chasm between those who can handle it and those who can't right now, you know? Gosh, there's a lot of things I can say in response to that. I'm going to say three things in rapid succession, I think. All right. So one of them is that Socrates lived through the plague of Athens. And so it's very interesting to look at how pandemics uh, affected philosophers in the ancient world. But Marcus Aurelius lived through something called the Antonine Plague, which was far worse than the pandemic we are facing at the moment. It killed five million people in the Roman Empire alone, and it lasted about 10 years or what? more. So you, you can see it was a variation of smallpox, like is our best educated guess. Wow. So the the meditations he's writing, his book, The Meditations, um, it's one of the most popular spiritual classics of all time. You could even view it, in a sense, as being a psychological coping manual for dealing with the stress of a pandemic. He's writing it in the middle of the Antonine plague. Um, so actually his cognomen. His family dynastic name is Antoninus, so the plague is is named after him. Actually, so that was the first thing. The other thing is just a bit of trivia, like book sales of books and stoicism have gone through the roof since the beginning of the pandemic. That's like, great. So That's the, good the to hear. The publishing industry is like, well, pe- people are like reaching out for Seneca and Marcus Aurelius and books and stoicism. And then the other thing that you mentioned, you, you've you made, you've kind of touched on one of my hobby horses, which is anger. So. I think anger, I call anger the royal road to self-improvement, coping with anger. Um, Conquering anger is the royal road, I believe, to self-improvement. The the Stoics talked a lot about anger. We have an entire book, uh, a psychotherapy book, uh, in a sense, from uh, Seneca on the Stoic therapy for anger. It's called On Anger, it survives today. The meditations of Marcus Aurelius, one of the main themes in that book is his own struggle with anger and how he, he sought to overcome it. So the Stoics think of all the negative emotions, they think anger is really the big one that we should be focusing on. Um, and I think they're right about that, actually. And I'm amazed the extent to which anger is neglected. There's an odd thing about this as a therapist. So first of all. We usually say very simply there are three broad categories of negative emotion, anger, fear, and sadness. So fear is anxiety. Sadness is depression, right? And most emotions kind of broadly fall into one of those categories. People who come to therapy are typically anxious or depressed, right? And maybe they have a bit of anger in the mix. But it's unusual for someone to self-refer for therapy, mainly because they have issues with anger. They're more likely... To be referred if they're in an institution like the military or a prison or a school and someone else says you need to go to therapy buddy because you've got an anger problem right. or if their spouse says you need to go to therapy because you've got an anger problem but angry people externalize a problems so they tend to go no you need to go to therapy you guys are the ones that have got a problem so they think everyone else needs therapy so angry people are kind of resistant to referring themselves for therapy and so they're kind of ripe for the picking in a sense like you know because they're dodging therapy like and they're ones that they need it as much as everybody else and so they, they they've kind of neglected people of our culture our society has neglected to work on anger but anger in a sense is also the most interpersonal of the negative emotions It tends to be focused on our behavior towards other people a bit more than fear and depression typically are. Right. I'm generalizing here. And I think, you know, obviously that's a disadvantage because it can lead to aggression and it can destroy relationships and things. But in some ways it's potentially an asset because the big problem in doing therapy and dealing people's emotions is that we all have a blind spot for our feelings. Right. We're much better at looking at other people and Mm -hmm. saying, see what that guy's problem is. It's clear as day. Like you know, there's like what he's doing wrong. But we're not very good at judging our own problems. We naturally have this kind of blind spot for our own cognitive biases, um, is how we would phrase it. But because anger tends to be directed towards other people, we kind of get feedback more. Like we get more pushback against it in a sense. And we can use that as a tool to make people a lot more aware of the distortions in the thinking. Like, when people are angry, um, the Stoics called it temporary insanity, temporary madness. I mean, you're right. Absolutely. There's a body of research now that shows there are many specific cognitive biases that people exhibit when they get angry. So angry people typically underestimate risk. Interesting, during a pandemic, like mm-hmm. people get really angry about it, are typically going to mm-hmm. underestimate the risk of the pandemic. Um, they tend to be overly confident about their appraisal of what other people's motives are. Like, that guy's definitely out to get me. Where someone else might go, well, it kind of seems that way, but who knows what he's thinking, right? right, right. Angry people are very certain like, that they know what yeah. people are thinking. Uh, we call that mind-reading, the fallacy of mind-reading in therapy. And they tend to make sweeping generalisations as well and be quite rigidly locked into them. So they, they're rubbish at problem-solving, right? If you imagine that you've got a leaking tap and you're trying to fix it and you're really getting angry because you hit your thumb with a spanner or something like that, it's hard to to solve practical problems when you're angry. Your anger kind of gets in the way. You lack patience. You can't think clearly and stuff. But fixing a leaking tap is a piece of cake compared to fixing a broken relationship because relationships are much more complicated generally than practical, technical problems like that. People are are the most complicated thing that we have to deal with. So if you're not thinking straight, you're dealing in generalizations, unwarranted certainties, overestimating or underestimating risk, all these cognitive biases, it's gonna be really hard to deal with interpersonal or relationship problems because of their subtlety and their complexity it just makes
1: it worse too it compounds yeah. it right like personally for,
0: empathize right right and you're not even trying to
1: you're in such a state of selfishness it's unreal my biggest problem was anger and uh i had a serious anger issue and um Starting a little earlier than that, I had a little period back in the late 90s there when I was very into Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Like I was reading a lot and studying a lot about Buddhism. And that, luckily for me, opened the door to self-reflection. So it wasn't so much as Buddhist philosophy helping me figure out why I was so angry as as just accepting, as you had just said, that I was angry and that it was me. And looking at it, you know, internally, once I was able to do that, you know, quite a few years years later, I was at least able to build on that to a point where, okay, I know, I, I have a lot of anger issues, and I was able to find out through internalizing them that where they came from. And it was pretty obvious, once you calm down and admit to yourself, why are you angry? What are you afraid of? You know, and that is the biggest thing uh, comparing, you know, Jediism to Sto- Stoicism is like, is, you know, fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, hate leads to the dark side, is absolutely yeah. the way of the universe. So for me, uh, a lot of the light started to flood into my life when I was able to admit all those things. And then once you realize why you feel those ways, that's when you can start changing the thought process because i was enraged i have a lot i've been able to let go of a lot of it over the past you know couple of years through personally consciously internalizing and learning and trying to think about things differently but uh jealousy and anger were two things that i could not control in any way i still you know you still lose your temper once in a while it's not nearly as bad i'm very proud of myself as far as how far I've come. You ask a lot of people, they're like, Jay, Jay's never angry. Jay's always smiling. But no, I, I can lose it. And uh not so much as, as before, but yeah, it's it's it was my biggest problem. It's the biggest problem throughout humanity and it yeah. is the leading cause of selfishness at the same time, right? Causes wars,
0: like martyrs, cause yeah. causes genocide. Like it's bad. Yeah. Like yeah. It's our history. Yeah, I guess <laughs> yeah, yeah, clearly. <laughs> Yeah. It's a problem for humanity. And the Stoics thought this is obvious, right? It's like a, a big problem. We need to deal with it. Also in a micro you know, just in, in our individual relationships it's, it's one of the biggest problems. And
1: sorry, um, not to interrupt, but with the personal relationships, it's silly because you will anger will often lead to you getting selfish about something that isn't even good for you. Mm-hmm. A lot of relationships end because the two people aren't just good for each other. They're just not compatible or they don't work. Mm -hmm. Yet, for some reason, one or both of those individuals will get incredibly angry and jealous once the relationship's over just because of their feelings of selfishness and want and anger, yet that person may not even be good for them. You know, that Uh person may be bad for them, yet you don't want to let go of it because of your
0: anger. You're not thinking clearly, right? yeah and like we said about the Jedi, like the, the Stoics Seneca says that anger, generally speaking um, stems from fear. and the the Stoics go further than that as well, and they say often it comes from overattachment, it comes from desire. So that applies to relationships, being overly dependent, overly attached to someone yeah. else in an unhealthy way. And that's and not then, just the Jedi, that's the whole Star yeah. Wars philosophy, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, Sorry, go on. Yeah.
0: <laughs> no, if that, that's taken away, then of course you're going to feel angry, but maybe you were too you kind know, of like attached to things in, in the first place. Um and the, you know, the the Stoics want to kind of teach us as, as well. At, I think Stoicism is a, a philosophy of love. You know, it's about having a kind of um a tough love, a kind of rational love They yes. think uh, love needs to be channeled through wisdom yes you know, uh, we have this idea it's plato plato's to blame for many of our problems <laughs> 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 like, it's all his fault right so plato had this idea of psychology that you have reason and the passions and they're kind of like separate faculties okay and the Stoics said well that's not really true right like they're interrelated things like the where you have passions, where you have emotions, they're, they're based on underlying beliefs. And we, we need to learn that, you know, love isn't this just crazy, irrational thing that's completely separate from reason. The Stoics thought, no, like genuine love is rational, in a sense, like is guided, it's filtered through reason and wisdom. You know, people can learn to love wisely. Like prudently, like they learn to love like selflessly, self-discipline. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and yeah. there's a healthy, there's a healthy form of love, and an unhealthy form of love that's irrational and foolish, like and overly dependent on people, and that's kind of like a recipe for neurosis. They think. Um, so I, I wanted to mention to you as well. They, there's a, a line in uh, Star Wars, the. Uh, people that are into stoicism always think sounds an awful lot like a, a really weird famous quote. So it's that one where Obi Wan Kenobi says, "If you strike me down, you'll make me even more powerful." Then you can Is possibly that imagine, along those lines. right?
1: Yeah. yeah. If you strike me down, I will become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. Yeah,
0: yeah. And it. yeah. it's a little bit like the last line, Epictetus's handbook. The final line of it um, is a kind of paraphrase or a quote from Socrates in court, and he says, Anitus and Melitus, so the two guys who are prosecuting him and want to have him executed, um, Anitus and Melitus can kill me, but they cannot harm me. It's a typical Socratic paradox. And actually, one of the famous Stoics used to say that about Emperor Nero who persecuted Stoic philosophers. He said, Nero can kill me, but he cannot harm me. Right. right. And what he meant was he can he can kill me, he can end my life, but he can't harm my character. Right. he can't make me into a bad person. Right. And actually, because I'm not afraid of Nero killing me, like means my my character's if I was scared, then I'd subordinate myself to a political tyrant. He'd have control over me. Like, because I'm not scared of Nero taking my life, I have freedom. Like, and I can speak up to him. I can defy him in the Senate. So he'll never conquer my spirit. As long as I'm, you know, I'm not afraid of him taking. It. So he can kill me, but he can't harm my character. That's under my control. I yeah. can choose to stand up to him. And that, you know, the line itself. I think uh, people who are interested in stoicism often feel they they see a parallel with that line in Star Wars. But I think, like you say, you know more about the Jedi philosophy and you know other other parts of the Star Wars canon and so on. There's probably other similarities. The, the interesting... I'll tell you another thing that people have often said uh, that should medieval chivalric codes of honor we can't find a direct connection with stoicism but many people look at them and go it very much looks like the chivalric codes are kind of somehow inspired by stoic philosophy right it's
1: it's a weird thing in star wars because over the years i mean it started out you know light and dark bad and good you know evil fighting against good and the Jedi always represented this, you know, goodness and the light side of the force and all these, you know, stoic values. Absolutely. It is, it's incredibly, you know, based on that. And the thing I'm seeing nowadays is Star Wars and the fans of Star Wars are being attracted to this whole gray Jedi idea, this whole idea of uh, you know, more of a balance between studying the dark and the light side as kind of the original Jedi did. Um, because the whole reason in the movies that the kind of the order fell is they didn't see it coming because they became arrogant. Right. And they became overconfident and they lost a lot of those core values. So in a way, the Jedi failed in that way. So it's kind of interesting. And I like seeing that there are a lot of fans who are are more attracted to a balanced outlook than just a pure good or evil. And that's been something that Star Wars is exploring a lot right now, especially on the Mandalorian show. And you've got Ahsoka Tano, this Jedi, who's not a Jedi. She left the Jedi order not to become a Sith, but to sit in the middle. And, you know, and now she's this fan favorite and people are loving this idea. So Maybe that's people are connecting to that because of the situation we're in right now. I don't know. But uh, yeah, the basic old Jedi, you know, is there's no self, there's no, you know, uh, and that's another thing. A lot of people, this, when I explained to you about the relationship uh, that, you know, I just came out of uh, it's, it's amazing to me how amazed people are by it that I was able to break up with someone, continue to live with them happily, amicably, you know, most of the time, of course, there's up and downs, right? Uh, like any family in any household. But overall, we came through it with flying colors. Our kid is better for it. Our kid has definitely grown, you know, happy and mature because we were able to have that partnership. And a lot of people are just like amazed by it. And they're like, how, how, how? And I have simple answers uh, that weren't that incredible. And really, it is mm-hmm. not thinking about self. And loving somebody fully, like you were talking about that right kind of love, that healthy kind of love, is to consistently look at what they need and what is going to benefit them and what is going to help them along in their life and make their life happier. If you can consistently do that and communicate about that, you're going to actually get through fairly easily, right? Um, But I think that's what people just the anger takes over and mm-hmm. and they can't possibly think of of letting go of all their thoughts and just empathizing towards someone
0: else, right? Yeah. I think it's a lack of role models in some way as well. I mean, I think Absolutely. honestly, when, when you say people just can't imagine it, that's there's a clue right there, right? Because they don't really feel that they've seen many examples of this before. And there's a, maybe like Plato famously says, or has Socrates say in The Republic, that if he looks at the Greek tragedies, they're like horror stories, right? Um, and they're, they're very entertaining. But he says they're full of really terrible role models. Like the, the heroes in the Greek tragedies are all, in a sense, the cause of their own tragedy. And they, they, they freak out over things that arguably they don't really need to freak out over and make things much, much worse like, than they needed to be. And Socrates says that they're awesome. But they're, they're kind of setting a, quite a bad example. And so Plato's solution to that was a bit totalitarian. He wanted to get rid of them, whereas the Stoics were more accepting of art. And they said, no, let's bring back the tragedies. We can study them. But we need to view them in a bit of more of a detached way. We, we need to study them while realising we're not supposed to emulate these characters like, that are coping badly and suffering and freaking out their interest. They're almost like case studies in psychopathology, you know, this is an example of what not to do in the face of a crisis. Mm-hmm. Like, and there are also good role models that you can find in literature. It just happened to be that Greek society was dominated by these bad role models in the tragedies. But I think this is a problem as well today. You know, like people don't somehow know how to sort out good and bad role models. And mm-hmm. they, 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 if you ask them, they don't, they'll say, I can't imagine like dealing with a relationship breakup in a rational and kind of benevolent and patient. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because like, so no one's ever explained that to them. Yeah, yeah. They expect to, people to freak out and deal with it badly because, they, mm-hmm. they, you know, that's kind of what they've, what they've seen, what, they, what they've learned over time. They don't have enough good examples.
1: It, it also comes down onto your own behavior as far as, you know, why do these relationships end? I mean, our relationship ended uh, very, you know, for no nefarious reason. There was no cheating. There was no, you know, other people. There was no, you know, abuse. There was nothing like that. It just wasn't working. We just didn't click. We shouldn't be together. Let's make that decision. So we were very lucky that we were both uh, are both mature enough people and have been through enough crap in the past with people to have both been on the same page at that time. So that made it very easy going in, right? But you're right, that's, that's a rare thing to
0: happen nowadays, right? It's unfortunate. The Stoics have this radical idea that uh, in order to love somebody, and they go as far as to say, in order to love someone properly, in order to love someone wisely in a kind of natural way, like you have to do it with non-attachment. And th- their way of phrasing that is that you should view other people as on loan from nature, and so there's a built into your love for another person. There's an acceptance that you don't control them. Yes. That they're an individual very important. and that people change, you know, nothing is permanent. Right. Um, and, that you know, one day, you, you know, they might decide that they don't love you anymore. Or, yeah. you know, sometimes, you know, we lose people that we love for other reasons. You know, maybe they die or, you know, something else causes our relationship to break up. And the the Stoics think we have to go into things with this sense of non-attachment. They view it as just being realistic. They think you can love people while accepting that nothing is forever. And they actually think that's the only real way to love somebody is with this kind of uh, philosophical attitude towards it. It's uh, it's the way I feel, to be honest with what I've been
1: through. That is definitely the I can see that being kind of uh, closing in as the tunnel that I'm kind of heading through. Do you know what I mean? As these ideas come together, especially also, uh, I would be remiss to not mention the Batman uh, because I was also reading a few things on how Batman, yes, is, in fact, is one Batman of the is most stoic characters out there. Right. I mean, maybe a little bit hardcore Of a stoic, you know, extreme, you know, but uh, in a way there's a, you know, there is that that deep care and love that's in there. It's just so controlled and reasoned, you know, but again, uh, you're taking a character who is completely motivated by rage. Yet, it's his control and understanding of that anger and rage that enables him to be able to do the things that he does. So, I guess, yeah, that would be stoicism, like like being stoic to pretty much a T, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm going to make a case for Wonder Woman being a, I'm not, I'm no expert, but you know, like, yeah. uh, I, just because of our kind of Greek cultural heritage. She's like, uh, <laughs> she's, she's technically, I think, like, isn't she like, she's the daughter of Zeus or something like yes, that? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah? That means that depending on the incarnation, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, I'm going to make a case for Wonder Woman representing an aspect of of stoicism, just because that's one of my little girls' favorite. uh...
1: (laughs) Well, like you were saying, though, yeah. Also, role models, right? Like all these role models, and it's great that for little girls like Ahsoka and Wonder Woman, there's some, there's you know, an amazing change in in the way that we're viewing role models to a certain extent. What a role model is, Um, you know, it. Most of these superheroes, I guess, kind of embody this idea, because, you know, reason and balance is what we really do crave, right? We know that it's going to hurt less. This horrible world that we live in, this cruel nature that we have to endure, it's going to be easier, you're going to have more strength if you're able to use this insane computer that's been plucked Mm -hmm. in our heads. That's the thing that gets me is like, like we have this capacity to outthink ourselves. We Mm -hmm. can outthink our feelings if we learn to do it and let ourselves do it. I -hmm. think at least that's the way I look
0: at it. Right. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'd say that the Stoics think that if we want to benefit from role models, we kind of need to put a conscious, like many things, the Stoics think we just need to make a conscious effort, and maybe not even a huge conscious effort, but just a bit more conscious effort to turn all of this around. And they they think we need to make a conscious, deliberate effort to identify the admirable qualities in other people. And two ways that they do that is to say it's important to sit down and think Um, of what they call the sophos or the ideal sage or wise man or woman. So they say you should ask yourself, what's the optimum? What's the ideal for someone dealing with adversity? And then you should look for specific examples in your own life or in history or in fiction, but sort the wheat out from the chaff and say, what qualities are admirable about Batman or Wonder Woman and worthy of emulation? And are there there other qualities that aren't worth emulating? Mm -hmm yeah like, so like to be more dressing kind of up like a bat running judgment. around the streets yeah. right we don't have <laughs> it may not be a great idea costume. nowadays but absolutely yeah 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 you know? And like to come back to the thing about relationships as well they think marcus really says something really cool about this so i'm just going to kind of throw it out there he says that we naturally tend to imagine absent things as if they were present so imagining having a ferrari or something like that and you don't have one like, and he says that causes craving for things yes. that we don't possess or can't possess. And that causes suffering. Like, and he says, but we should be making a conscious effort to do the opposite and imagine present things that as if they were absent. And he says the emotion that that generates is gratitude. Yes. So, appreciation. And relationships as well, like just taking time, you know, to kind of imagine that you weren't with the person that you're with and, you know, what, how your life would be different if you were single. Like in yeah. order to kind of so that you don't take the other person for granted basically. So, yeah. so it's think like, that like, we keep, we need to keep giving ourselves these little nudges or reminders like so that we remember to be grateful. And you know, it's actually a silly thing, you know, when I was a kid and this makes it sound much longer ago than it actually was. But when I was a young guy, you know, my family in Scotland, we didn't have a lot of money and we, for a long time, we didn't even have a fridge. We didn't have a car We didn't have double glazing or set with a coal fire, you know. And so often I'll just remember what it was like when I was a kid, you know, especially in Canada, like in Toronto when it's snowing really heavy and stuff like that, I'll be thinking, geez, man, it wasn't that long ago when people, you know, didn't have microwave ovens and the internet and they didn't have electricity. We'd all just be sitting with a candle reading the Bible in the middle of this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it makes me grateful that just I've got a roof over my head. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this...
1: this new studio I'm in, I've been here two weeks. This is my second weekend here. I lived with uh, Aaron the, the, there for 12 years. So I am two weeks fresh being on my own. I'm 43. Uh-huh. I mm-hmm. haven't lived on my own since I was 24 years old. Wow. So yeah. now I'm 43 and I'm two weeks fresh into my own place. And it is weird. It's not, you know, it's not bad. And I'm fine. And, you know, I could call up and go visit or do whatever anytime. And, uh, but there's a weird feeling of appreciation and Mm -hmm. gratitude, but it's kind of for both right now. I'm appreciating Uh, what I just had. But now I'm, I'm, I have something that I haven't for so long, that I can't help but focus on it. And I'm finding the appreciation
0: and the gratitude in everything, right? I can barely think of a that Like most emotions can be excessive and they have their kind of downside. But I, can, I struggle actually to envisage an unhealthy form of gratitude. You know, generally speaking, it requires an effort to cultivate gratif- gratitude. And I think partly for that reason, it tends to be a more considered and a healthier emotion. So, I think Marcus thinks like people take things for granted. That's our kind of default setting. Right. Like we need to kind of dig deep within ourselves in order to remember to be grateful. And you can't go too far wrong, generally speaking, by just remembering to experience more gratitude for things. Likewise, you can't go too far wrong just by making a bit more of an effort to reflect on what qualities are actually worth emulating or admiring and, and the other people around you.
1: Right, And your immediate reaction to things there's uh, in this new apartment, there's some guy who smokes out on the front stoop and just drops mm. his cigarettes everywhere. There's a giant gross mess of cigarettes, and every day I yeah. come home and I think, okay, I've got two choices here. I could go one way or the other. So I've thought about gathering mm-hmm. up all those cigarettes, finding out which apartment is is his, and just dumping them in front of his door. Uh-huh. And that could be that would be a negative, irresponsible, unnecessary thing that i would only be doing to make myself feel better right Uh, it would be an attack out of you know selfishness or i could find a coffee tin and put some dirt in it and leave it there as a subtle non-aggressive hint to maybe put your cigarette butts in there right so that's the decision i've made but man did i just want to load up those cigarettes and put them in front of his door but i was like you know what what if this guy has just doesn't know better what if it's a tough day? What if he's, you know, stressed out? Yeah. What if he's going through something and just is literally, he's not trying to be inconsiderate. He just happens to be because maybe he's distracted or doesn't know better. Right. Yeah. Like I'm trying yeah. to reasonably look at this before I attack the situation.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, you've hit on something there. You're making me homesick for Canada. Like, well, it's all flying back to me now. But the grass is always greener on the other side. We don't really have that here, but we've got dog poop everywhere. So you're lucky you don't have <laughs> yeah. the dog poop problem, right? right? grateful for that. But what you're hitting on is the Stoics have this controversial theory that they kind of inherit from Greek philosophy in general, that they believe anger typically is a desire for revenge, And it takes the form of kind of wanting to get back at the other person or to injure them or harm them or to kind of, we say, teach them a lesson, right? right? People often say that. But ironically, when someone says, I'm going to teach that guy a lesson, usually they're not really teaching them anything. Usually that's the opposite. Like, And Socrates has this weird, like many of Socrates' arguments are people throughout history have said they're kind of unconvincing, but they sort of stay with you. Like, and they kind of like stick in your brain a bit, you kind of think something, something about that. He has this very simplistic argument where he says in um, one of his dialogues, one of Plato's dialogues, where Socrates is the character. Um, so in, actually in the beginning of Plato's Republic, there's this traditional Greek theory that justice, can, so this would be a cliche, that justice consists in helping your friends and harming your enemies. And Socrates says, I'm not so sure about that. And he argues in a long roundabout way that he thinks justice consists in helping your friends and helping your enemies. And that sounds outrageous to the Athenians, the Greeks. But Socrates says, but to truly help someone wouldn't be like giving them money or something like that. It would be enlightening them. Mm. And if you enlighten your enemies, then potentially you turn them into your allies. Mm-hmm. By and true justice would be benevolent. It would reform or re-educate I love people. That. Yeah. I by love it, that. Rather than and there's another dialogue where he says, <clears throat> When you when you harm somebody, um, when you when you injure somebody, he says, Do you make them worse or do you make them better than they were before? And his friend says, Well, when you harm somebody, you make them worse. And then Socrates says, Why would you want to make your enemies even worse than they were already? Now, some people say that's sleight of hand, that's a sneaky argument. Sometimes that actually has a very real point because you can see all the time, in particular on the internet, when people get angry with one another, they do make each other worse than they were before. They provoke, they try to hurt the other person's feelings and put them down. That just makes the other person even angrier than they were mm-hmm. before. So they're even more in their face. Now, if you did take, you know, all the cigarette stubs and kind of like Uh, you know, make a point of that. Maybe the guy would just get pissed off, like, and he'd be even more obnoxious than he was to begin with. So Socrates is making quite a valid psychological point. Often when we're angry, we do things that are against our own interests. Yes, Uh, yes. We attack our enemy. And, uh, you know, Marcus Aurelius, we know, as a general, even on this political level, on the military level, he was dealing with people in Rome that just wanted to be really punitive, um, to wipe out whole tribes of their enemies. And I think Marcus realized, look, if we do that, like, we'll win the battle, but we'll lose the war because, like, we're just going to, we need, we need to kind of have some kind of alliance with these people along Rome's border. Like, uh, right. if we just go in and slaughter everybody, like, other tribes will come in and fall the gap and they're all going to hate us. Like, mm-hmm. And eventually they're going to, like, they're going to gang up on like, yeah. you know, so or it's just we, a vicious circle that keeps going around. Yeah, we, we, we need the, the aim of war should be to achieve peace. Mm-hmm. Like, we need to kind of restore the balance. Like, you know, and sometimes that takes patience. So the problem that he faced was that there were other generals in Rome who said, can't we just go and kill them all? Like, can't we torture them and teach them a lesson, shut them all up and stuff? And so he said that might end the war in the short term, but it's going to cause us more problems in the long term. Right? Yeah. And it's the same fear on a be geopolitical it. level. Yeah, yeah. yeah. As, it, as it would be on an individual level. If you set out to hurt people like that you're angry with, like often in the long run, you just create more enemies.
1: Mm-hmm. Especially when their kids and their kids all you know have these ideas of how they were wronged in the past in whatever generations. Right? It's. A vicious, vicious thing. Um, We should probably talk a little of the business that we're supposed to talk about because I could go on uh, with the fun part forever and ever. So you'll have to come back on this show sometime uh, and just keep chatting because this is the best. But you are, in fact, working on a graphic novel. So uh, talk to us a little bit about how that's come about, why that has come about.
0: Well, it came about by accident. Our good friend Casey tells me that a lot of people find their way into to doing comics and graphic novels by kind of quite everyone finds their own way into doing it, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, there's quite a mixture of different people from different backgrounds that get into doing this. So I'm a writer. I kind of stumbled into that in some ways I've written about six books and uh, I'm working on two books at the moment, the graphic novels, one, I'm also working on a biography for Yale university press about Marcus Aurelius. Um, but the graphic novel kind of happened by accident and uh I, I uh, had an artist, an illustrator, who contacted me on Facebook. He's based in Portugal, and his name is Zen Nuno Fraga. And he had illustrated a graphic novel that he wrote himself based on a play by Aristophanes. And he was kind of showing that to me, and we are chatting about it, and I kind of forgot about it for six months or something. And then one day I suddenly thought, I should ask that guy if he could do a couple of little web comics for me to... I've advertised my courses and books and stuff and I got chatting to him, and we did some three little web comics and they worked out pretty well. People liked them. And then one day I was speaking at a conference in London and my publisher told me to print some pamphlets maybe to give out about one of my books. And so I went all around the place I was in London and for some weird reason I couldn't find a printer that was open and that seems like the craziest thing to me. Because I worked and I lived in London for a long time and there's printers everywhere. But in this area where I was staying temporarily, I just couldn't find one that would help me. And it was getting closer and closer to the day. I walked into a a random shop, a tile shop, and I said to the guy, is there a printer around here somewhere? I'm I'm just trying to get some pamphlets printed. And he said, well, there's a guy around the corner. He owns a shop called War. He does some kind of printing, but I'm not sure what. He's some kind of artist did. So I thought, I'll go and check this out. And he was right. There was a shop called War. And the guy that ran it said, well, I don't do normal printing. I do this thing called Giclee printing, which is high-quality printing for stuff that you would hang on your wall. I thought, that's okay. no use to me. You know, I guess I'm stuck yeah. out here. I'm not going to get my pamphlets printed. And then I went and had a coffee, and I thought, oh, you know what? Maybe I could get him to just print a few of these panels from the, the web comics that I did, and I could kind of put those out on display. At least that would be something. At the conference and i wasn't thinking about it at the time but i'd kind of forgotten that these conferences are often attended by people that work in the publishing industry so we put them out and this guy uh, came up to speak to me he was a senior editor for a major publisher in the us and he said at least you uh, graphic novel like uh, comic illustrations and i was like, yeah yeah sure because do you have more of them and i was like, showing them on my phone i was like yeah I've got a couple of wet comics and he goes like, we've been trying to get someone to do a graphic novel about Socrates, and uh, that goes in a conversation. I said, well, Socrates probably not going to work that well because he's too verbose. Like he has these complicated arguments that go, it's too much text. It would be tricky. Like, but the Stoics are almost like a bullet point version of Socrates. And in the life of Marcus Aurelius, the most famous Stoic, there's a lot of action. He was a military commander. There's a plague. Like, right, right. Know, it's, uh, it's more visual. Um, and that would work much better as a graphic novel. So that got me a book deal like to do a, a graphic novel, basically. Um, and I wound, up, I wound up doing it. But at no point in the entire process did anybody ask me, have you ever read a graphic novel? <laughs> <laughs> right. And I, can't, I guess I probably have, to be honest. I like to tell people that I haven't read any, but I'm probably exaggerating. I've probably read a couple over the years but I haven't read many comics or graphic novels for a long time and so I did do a lot of research right I read Scott McLeod's books and I read Stan Lee's books and a couple other books about how to write uh, scripts for graphic novels right was it a difficult transition
1: uh, learning to write a comic script
0: yeah like uh, there's more to it than I realized yeah like it's a a whole art form I'm learning a lot as I do it I'm lucky I've got a, a good artist And uh, Casey's been very helpful, actually, as well, like Mm -hmm. uh, bringing her perspective to... I call her the Queen of Blood because she's more into horror than me. So she... like. But that's quite useful. I think we... Like some of the scenes I only realise as we're writing, part of Marcus Aurelius' life, in some ways, is like a horror story. Um, And, you know, you view things differently when they're on the page. So you read, oh, he lived through this plague, five million people died. Anyway, what else happened? And then you move on when you're reading it in a normal book. But in a graphic novel, or I guess if you were to see it in a movie, you go, "No, this goes on through the rest of the story." Right? Like, there's yeah. people dying, you know, in a, a quite a, a gory way, and the society becomes much more bleak and stuff. This is turning into kind of a little bit more of a, of a horror story. So we we had to kind of look at it from a few different perspectives. But it's a major project, really, and a lot more work than a initially realized but actually my saving grace I think although I'm a bit of an ignoramus like or a bit of a novice when it when it comes to this genre when I was a kid um I absolutely loved a comic a British comic called 2000 AD right yeah and of course that was that was probably not bad preparation not at all yeah a graphic novel of this kind of ilk um yeah and uh, I, I read it religiously when, when i was a kid i loved the uh, judge dread and rogue trooper and abc warriors and all that that's a great that base to start from are you kidding yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah like so that i had that kind of at the back of my mind um when i was when i was working on it and i, I wanted as well like I thought it would be easy to write a script and just have a kind of dialogue dump and a bunch of guys in sandals talking to each other. <laughs> and I thought, no, I, I'm determined not to do that, right? We're, we'd be missing too much if we did that. And some people would be kind of happy with that. I thought, no, 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 no. Like, I, and maybe also because I read Stan Lee's book. Stan Lee's a bit of a, like, uh, like uh, not the, the greatest mentor in this respect, but he did say, he said one or two things that stuck with me. And one of them was that he said, kind of ideally um, in a Marvel comic, he would imagine that if you removed all of the text, could you still kind of roughly figure out what was happening in the story? Because the action was pretty uh, visible, pretty clear on the page. And, and so I thought, I want to have action on every page. Right. And I want to try and make it also as visually spectacular as possible. Because the story really lends itself to that. On the one hand, there's a lot of relationship stuff that's going on. There's a lot of kind of deep philosophical stuff that goes on. On the other hand, the guy's the commander-in-chief like, of the Roman army. He found himself in command of 140,000 men right. like, on the Danube frontier. So we have a lot of these extreme long shots like of Roman legions Just engaged in battle. epic shit, right? And like, yeah. epic stuff, like, really yeah. epic stuff going on. Right. And then like the kind of horror stuff. And I realized part of normally historians when they read Marcus Aurelius, it's interesting how you read things differently on uh, in text, uh, you know, in a conventional book form. So when you're reading the the history of his uh, reign, there'll be gossip that's reported. There'll be stories about dreams that people had that the Romans are very interested in. And conventional biographers will kind of go, yeah, whatever. And they don't pay too much attention to those details. But in the graphic novel, actually, they kind of come more into the foreground yeah. because we can show the dreams. Yeah. By, and then suddenly you realise the significance, actually, to understanding the psychology of the characters. And it allows us, I think Zay, my, my illustrator, said, uh, we asked him recently what was his favourite part, and I hadn't really thought about this, but he said he really likes doing the dreams by, because it gives him a lot more freedom to kind of express right, himself visually. Right, um it's kind of like that
1: was there. the approach they took on uh the alexander the great the movie the alexander with colin farrell yeah. i think it was is that the was kind of their approach was to look at it that way and throw some weird stuff in there just to try to yeah. get that kind of perspective of it so um is there a timeline as saint mary's press i believe saint martin's
0: saint martin's, saint martin's sorry yeah. um well listen i i Look, uh, initially, I didn't the, the big mistake I made originally was I didn't realize how long it takes to do a graphic. The <laughs> site is 250 pages. So we're, we've been working pretty intensively on it. I think it's going to take us about two years altogether. And we're kind of just over halfway through. That's so I'm kind of hoping it will come out late next year. Um, basically, we're kind of putting out little samples of the artwork on Instagram and Twitter and stuff at the moment. But I think that it will finally come out late next year. Actually, the other book that I'm working on might even potentially come out before it, um, just because it takes longer to do the graphic novels. I spoke. Have you ever heard of a, a book called Logic Comics? It's about the history of Bertrand Russell and Wittgenstein. It's about philosophy. No, it was a it was a bestseller. Um, I spoke to the illustrator for that and I, my kind of jaw dropped because I just hadn't realized how much work was involved. <laughs> and they had a team of four people working on their thing. Yeah. And he just dropped in the conversation. He was like, yeah, it took us like six or seven years to do it. Whoa. Was like, that's extreme. Whoa, that's extreme. Really? Yeah. Like, yeah, like, geez, man, I was, I wasn't going to take that long. Like, no, a year or two
1: is definitely far more along the timeline I'm familiar with, as as far as I've been watching these Yahoos make these things for years, right? So, there is two there is a outfit here, uh, alternative uh, alternate history comics out here. I'm not sure if you're familiar with them at all. They uh, they have a couple no. award winning graphic novels they've put out. Uh, two of them in particular moonshot volumes one and two Uh are all uh aboriginal stories or by natives Uh, they're all they're all native uh stories in this thing it's it's quite amazing he's got another one that is all uh can't remember what it's called but it's all jewish it's all it's like a jewish anthology anthology Uh, it's even got an old story by stan lee when he was young oh Uh, yeah in this book but they also the uh, what i'm getting to here is they made a graphic novel uh about mark twain and uh historical niagara and uh just it's same idea and just absolutely beautiful gorgeous stuff but it's uh it just makes it so much more interesting to look into these visual aspects of these guys' stories as well, right? Like I'm far more interested. I'm going to like keep myself from going on Google to look up more about Marcus Aurelius because now I want to wait till I'm able to read your
0: book and learn it that way. Right. sounds way more exciting and entertaining. It's interesting. I mean, it definitely changed, you know, I'd already written a lot about him, but I think doing the graphic novel, kind of changed my understanding of them in a lot of subtle ways. Um, a lot of the historical details we had to research much more carefully suddenly. So I think the main thing actually is just seeing it on the page. I realized, and I, you know, I knew this kind of intellectually before, but it made it much more concrete for me. It suddenly dawned on me, for sure this is a guy who woke up every day, certainly at a certain point in his life, opened his eyes and thought, Kind of a little bit surprised that I'm still alive, right. like, because yeah. people were dropping like flies around him from the plague. Right. He could easily like um, they they could have been overrun by the what they called the barbarians, the Germanic tribes. Mm-hmm. Um, people were assassinated, like and I think about a quarter of the Roman emperors were assassinated. <laughs> like had all of these things hanging, like the sword of Damocles hanging over his head. And I, when I visualized it on the page, that like, really brought that home to me. When he writes in the meditation. About contemplating his own death and accepting his own mortality, it seems a little bit more abstract. But then, when you, you visualize in a concrete way his his life situation. You think, oh no, for him this isn't an abstract thing. It's like it's very real. He could be assassinated at any minute. Or could, right, right. right. You know, there's a civil war declared against him. If he loses that, you know, he'll be beheaded. Like you know, he's yeah. uh, everyone around him's dying of the plague um so the kind of precariousness of his uh, his life he had 14 children and seven of them died before him wow um so you can imagine how traumatic it is to lose a child he lost about seven children um and still was
1: able to somehow well i mean maybe that even led to the solidifying of his belief in
0: a lot of these ideas right so you know i'll let you in on a secret this is my view of uh there are many things we have to speculate about in history because there's clues, right. but we don't know for sure. In writing a graphic novel, you have to sometimes kind of join dots together mm-hmm. that almost line up. Mm-hmm. You have to go, let's just take a leap of faith and we will assume that that's what's going on here. A good example would be the main tutor that he had who taught him uh stoic philosophy it was a guy called Genius Rusticus. And Marcus left him behind at Rome. He had to because he was the urban prefect, like the, the mayor of Rome. Okay. And so Mar- Marcus, when he went to Austria uh, to command these legions, left his, his main tutor, his best friend and closest ally behind. And he would have communicated in writing and letters to him discussing philosophy, and the guy would have been mentoring him. Um, but then he dies. And round about the time, just about maybe a year or so, after Gineas Rusticus dies, Marcus begins writing the meditations, which was originally titled To Himself. So it's as if uh-huh. he thought, all my teachers are dying. Like my, my my closest teacher mentor is gone now. I'm here alone, away from home for the first time in this dangerous situation. So I'm going to carry on writing letters about stoic philosophy like I was writing to him. I'm going to address them to myself. Now I'm going to have to become my own mentor, my own therapist. And I think that's what we see in the meditations in that book is him having been forced into a situation where he has to take over the role of becoming his own therapist and mentor. Now I want to read them. So I want to just sit down and read these meditations. Uh,
1: Donald, I cannot thank you enough for uh, joining me this afternoon. This has been an absolutely fascinating conversation that I hope we can continue someday. And now knowing, uh, uh your habitat situation here in the t-dot uh hopefully when all this calms down and you're allowed to come home we can actually sit down and have a proper paint and a proper discussion uh, about the matter and uh yeah. that would be super super cool but i can't thank you for enough sure. for for taking the time i know it's getting a little late there uh but again is there anywhere
0: online where can people follow you you're on twitter you mentioned and stuff yeah on twitter and instagram and stuff if they go to my website it's just donaldrobertson.name so it's n-a-m-e instead of dot com and uh all my links to social media and all my articles and everything. And they can there's like they can sign up to get a kind of preview of the graphic novel. Like there's interviews with the illustrator and little videos we did when we were doing the research and stuff that they can check out if they're interested.
1: Very, very cool. Uh kids, you all need to go do that. Um again, yes, thank you so much for joining us, Donald. We will do this again. Kids, uh, if you're struggling, um look to these things, look to these ways, get think think it out. We're, we're feeling a lot right now. Uh, our emotions are overwhelmed for a lot of different reasons. Um, just remember you've got this supercomputer plugged into your head and, uh, just try to reason it out. Uh, you know, try to find the wisdom and things and, uh, reach out for help with those things. Mentors, um, you know, we can get there. We have the capabilities to help each other if we can just bother and try. Uh, and you know, a lot of this lends to that, so uh, kids take care of each other uh, check out Donald's stuff out there because obviously there's a lot to check out we will keep you informed uh, when the graphic novel eventually does uh, come out you will have to come back and talk all about that too sir awesome yeah I look forward to it definitely excellent uh, kids that's Donald Robertson and that's also all we are going to have this week on An Elegant Weapon until next time back goodies
0: for the more civilized age
1: And again, once more, let me remind you that this is our brand new theme song by The Slackers, available on the Boss Harmony Sessions. Thank you again, guys, for letting us have this. It's such a groovy way to come in and out. Greatest band in the world. Donald, thank you again. Kids, take care of each other. One love. Okay. And we are clear. Excellent. That Welcome. was super fun. Thank you so much, Donald. I greatly appreciate the conversation. No, absolutely. Like like I say, Casey says do it, and I do, because it always ends up fantastic. So, uh, uh, yeah, again, we'll keep in touch. Hopefully we'll chat again sometime. Yeah, but other sure. than that, good definitely. luck with everything. And, uh, you Likewise. know, I hope all is safe and take care, yeah?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I oh, hope you're safe and well there as well. Yeah, maybe I'll see you. When I'll... I'll probably be back in Toronto in the summer. So.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. we'll definitely have to uh, we'll get see. together
0: then. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Cool.
1: All right. Great to meet you. Take care. Bye-bye.